0: Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by ExCorde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer in residence here at the college, and you can read what I write at alatea.org or excorde.org. Today's episode is about five Jesuses, the four we invent and the one we meet. I wanna talk about Jesus, because ultimately he's the whole point of Catholic living. We had a monk here at Benedictine College who had a simple test to tell whether a Catholic school was serious or not. He would say, do they mention Jesus Christ on their website? You'd be surprised how few actually do. And that was his test for a homily also. Did the guy talk about Jesus? So now when my kids come home from religion class, I said, what did they talk about? Did they talk about Jesus? So, of course, the Catholic part of Catholic living is important, too, because without the Catholic Church, we would quickly lose sight of who Jesus really is. As Pope Francis put it, without the Church, Jesus would be at the mercy of our imaginations, our interpretations, and our moods. That undoubtedly is true. Without the Church, we rewrite Jesus, like the Da Vinci Code did, or we rethink him without faith, as the scholar skeptic Bart Airman does when he's on NPR over and over and over again. Or we imagine our faith without religion as recent books by James Carroll or Bill O'Reilly have done. There are several Jesuses running around in our heads and I thought it would be interesting and helpful if we could sort them out. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't mean to list all the bad guys, understandings of Jesus and then wink and to my fellow good guys and say, now we'll give our right answer. Because the truth is I regularly end up with one of these wrong answers in my own life and I suspect you do also. So who's the first false Jesus? The first false Jesus that I wanna mention is the especially vivid and loving imaginary friend, right? My wife and I teach a confirmation class here in Atchison. Actually, she does it most of the time now and I only occasionally help out. But when I do help out, I asked the students, raise your hands if this statement is true. Jesus is an imaginary friend who will give you a hug whenever you want one. You'd be surprised. Almost everybody raises their hand, right? I was really proud of one guy who refused to raise his hand, and I asked him why. He said, because he's not imaginary, Mr. Hoops. And that's the right answer. This imaginary Jesus is the one I personally rejected when I was in CCD, when I was in religion class as a kid. Uh, I think if they had tied him more to the sacraments, I would have gotten him more. So I received my first communion twice. My mom was Mexican, and I had a brother who was three years older than me and a sister who was two years older than me. We didn't have a lot of money, and Mexicans like to throw a big party when you receive your first communion. So she decided she'd kill three birds with one stone and give us all first communion at the same time. My brother was eight, my sister was seven, but I was only five. So I don't think they took me to confession and I don't think I understood what was going on. I know in the Eastern church, people receive communion at a young age. At any rate, I didn't know what was going on. So I received a second first communion after we moved and we took catechism classes at a new parish. Well, something convinced the catechism teacher that it would be a great idea to have the priest remove the ciborium with the blessed sacrament in it from the tabernacle and have all the children come up to the tabernacle and put their hands inside of it to see that there was nothing scary or weird about it. Well, for me as a little seven year old, this was like an aha moment. It was like, you know, Toto pulling the curtain back and realizing there's no Wizard of Oz. There's just some guy who's pulling a bunch of levers. Because from that day on, whatever she was trying to teach, I was convinced, oh, there's nothing in that box that everybody's making a big deal out of. Jesus isn't real. So that and th- that combined with the fact that nobody took me to confession for years and years and years, I think I received my first confession and I think that was my last confession before college. I basically stopped believing in Jesus. My religion teachers taught me that Jesus was inside me. I didn't understand how that would work. That would make him smaller than me, right? They never taught me that I was in Christ, which would have helped me understand it. They said he was always with me, but I never saw him, and I didn't know about the sacrament, so I didn't see him there. Uh, Instead, he became entirely irrelevant to my life. He was a guy who would always forgive you no matter what you did, so I no longer cared to worry about what I did. So when it came time for me to be confirmed, I said, no way I wasn't going to stand up in front of a bunch of people and declare that I believed in this religion that was absurd to me. Plus at my parish, when you were confirmed, you had to make a stole out of felt and put your favorite animal on it. So they went all in on sentimentalizing Jesus. But if Jesus is just a sentimental figure, if he's just this sort of nostalgic figure in your life, uh, If he's the Jesus in the statue who's winking and pointing at you with thumbs up, uh, then he's not gonna have much power over your life. A good antidote to this is the Pantocrator. If you look up that image on uh, Google images, you'll find this Jesus where I always show my students, half of his face is gentle and loving and forgiving. The other half, he has a arched eyebrow and he looks a little bit angry. And you're supposed to, when you look at it, the, the Jesus who needs to speak to you at that moment is, is the one you see. I also like the National Shrine in Washington, D.C., uh, where there's this angry Jesus with flames coming out of his head, right? This gets to the point that Jesus is real. And when he says he loves you always, he also says, Whoever loves me will keep my commandments. Right? You can't love Jesus by hugging him. You have to love him by doing what he says. The second false Jesus is a magical talisman. So a talisman is an object with supernatural or magical powers. This error is made both by those who wanna conjure Jesus with religion and those who are afraid of Jesus like he's gonna come after them. For those of us who are religious types, Jesus becomes kind of a genie in a bottle who has offered to grant us our wishes with the one proviso that we have to say them over and over again with feeling, right? For the lapsed, he becomes kind of a boogeyman who you don't take into account very much, but you fear disrespecting him because mysterious reprisals will happen in your life if you do the wrong thing. This is the Jesus of superstition, the Jesus of athletes who cross themselves on the field, but never off the field. It's the Jesus of people who see their relationship with God as a legal contract, where one part automatically has to do something if the other part does what they're supposed to do. But whether it's expressed in kind of externals only religion or as superstition, this ultimately destroys your faith, if you think of Jesus this way. I started out thinking of Jesus this way when I was in college at the University of Arizona. I had stopped going to mass, I no longer had my faith, but I would go on these long walks at night and for some reason I'd see the church and I'd always walk in there uh, cause I knew the door was unlocked. And I'd sit there and I'd stare at the front of the church and eventually I'd feel really creeped out and like leave. right? Cause I felt like Jesus had, was some kind of force in the universe that I had to reckon with, but I didn't understand why. Well, this changed when I, uh, started to listen to Bob Dylan of all people. Okay. So I was into pop music as a child. And so I got Rolling Stone and uh, started to read them cover to cover. And when they talked about Bob Dylan in the Rolling Stone magazine, they talked to him about him in a totally different way with these like odd and reverential tones as this great master of rock music. So when they said that this new album called Biograph was coming out with multiple discs reviewing his whole career, I got it right away. I taped it and listened to it on my Walkman. That's what we used to do back in the day. And I loved it. I loved all of it. He was very profound. I thought, but his Christian songs particularly kind of got under my skin. He's sang, you got to serve somebody, right? It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And that really struck me. He listed all the people, rich and poor, who had to serve somebody, either Jesus or the devil. And I loved that. I loved how egalitarian it was, how nobody was left untouched by this command to serve somebody. So kids love rock music because they hear people speaking passionately about things that adults refuse to talk about, right? (laughs) Whether it be sex or relationships or politics. Uh, and that's what Dylan did for me. He was saying important, true things that nobody else in my life was willing to say. And he was able to come at me with these truths of the faith that bypassed the normal kind of, you know, baggage laden adults that were typically talking about Jesus. So I bought his other Christian albums. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to think Dylan's Christian stuff was cool. I figured. It's Dylan, so it's cool, right? Uh, And his, I kind of became a convert to Dylan theology, right? He had uh, a number of memorable lines on there. One was, can you imagine the darkness that will come from on high when men will beg God to kill them, but they won't be able to die? This is some kind of Protestant version of the rapture, which I don't particularly believe in now, but oh my gosh, it really made a powerful impact on me then. But then he said this line, He said, did you ever wonder just what God requires? Or do you think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires? And that one really touched my heart. I thought, okay, Jesus is real. Jesus is somebody who's not just someone I turn to when I need a particular favor or somebody I refuse to cross in some superstitious way, but he can really help my life. So my prayer life changed. I think a good antidote to this is to pray a prayer I try to pray all the time, which is I must decrease and you must increase. And another one is this uh, gift of the Holy Spirit called fear of the Lord. So there's seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. One is fear of the Lord, where you are praying or where you're given this awe and reverence for who God is and you don't take him for granted or don't dismiss him as a superstition. So the third Jesus is the Jesus who's just a moral support to my ideology, right? We live in a very politicized society where the ultimate question, who are you at a party, isn't what's your religion or what family are you from? It's what's your political party, right? That tells who you really are. That's what you really care about when you meet somebody. In such a society, we have a grave danger of politicizing Jesus Christ. One side imagines that Jesus is rooting for the Republicans because they're pro-life, except when they aren't, which is most of the time. Or when they say the Republicans are for traditional marriage because the platform is, even though they hardly ever fought for it or do now. The other side is convinced Jesus is rooting for Democrats because they are anti-war, except when they're not and start a bunch of wars and kill kids in drone strikes. Or they think Jesus is on their side because they're for the little guy, as long as the little guy is born and not working in a factory in China. At any rate, in this misunderstanding, we reduce Jesus to just one factor of the, among the many factors that are supporting the thing which is actually important to us, our politics. Right? This Jesus is not allowed to challenge our opinions, but we're all for him when he supports them. This comes from a lack of trust in God, or perhaps too much trust in human institutions, and maybe that amounts to the same thing. So I kind of fell into this view of Jesus when I started practicing my Catholic faith again in college because I was more convinced by a new worldview than I was by Jesus Christ himself when it came right down to it. I decided to be pro-life in high school. I will never forget the day. I was literally on my back porch, and I thought, wow, Pregnancy is really hard on women. Abortion should be legal, right? They should be allowed to take care of this issue in their lives. But I realized that the unborn child was a human being. I mean, science proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt. So I tried to figure out how I could square being in favor of the choice of abortion and knowing that that choice killed a human being. And I suddenly realized that denying the humanity of a group of people was like the major problem in politics. I was a huge admirer of Martin Luther King Jr. And what he basically fought for was that a group of people be recognized for their human dignity. And obviously, Hitler was a big uh, figure in the imagination of me as a high school student in the 20th century. Uh, And I knew that what his major sin was denying a group of people humanity so i decided okay i'm going to be on martin luther king's side not hitler's side so i decided i was not going to be on the side of anyone who denied the humanity of a whole group of people no matter what kind of difficulties that posed elsewhere in the culture so as i said my mom was mexican she was also a lifelong democrat but she was also very passionately pro-life and since she was uh so close to the Democratic Party, we would get lots of mailings, often from uh, pro-abortion groups. Whenever we did, she would instruct me to print out on our dot matrix printer pages and pages of pro-life slogans. And then I would stuff them into their little self-addressed stamped envelope and send it back to the group so they would have to pay extra postage when they got it. So a few years later, when I transferred to a great books program in college, and I'll have to tell you that story someday, I found a group of people who were as pro-life as I was. They were also very opinionated about a number of other political issues. So I started to imbibe their worldview. And to some degree, I started to connect the political leanings of the new people in my life with the religious leanings of the new people in my life. And I became actually a very political person. I ended up working briefly on a presidential campaign, I ended up getting a job on Capitol Hill, and I ended up seeing the world through a very political lens. So I found out firsthand how difficult it can be to find Jesus when you've made him simply a help to your ideology. I had to sort out what was right and what was wrong about what I believed and what my political party believed and not just trust them. Jesus was the one I wanted to trust. The fourth false Jesus is the apologetics Jesus. So another trap active blog reading, church defending Catholics can easily fall into is reducing Jesus to sort of the master key to apologetics, the figure who makes all of our arguments right and all of their arguments wrong. He often doesn't start out this way We discover apologetics, realize our faith is not absurd, and that straightens out our life. It gets us back into a relationship with God, and it probably stops some of the sinful behavior that we've been following before we realize, oh my gosh, this stuff is real. Our relationship has to progress from there, however, from I finally get that Jesus is true to I finally get that Jesus is in my life and that I can have a relationship with him. Ultimately, the apologetics Jesus is not that different from the historical Jesus. You may have met people who take these skeptical Bible studies where they discover that Jesus isn't really who they think that he was. Well, that's not that different from those of us who take intellectualized approach to our faith and discover that Jesus is who we theorize he is. You saw this Jesus show up a lot in the Catholic moment of the 1990s. So what happened was Richard John Newhouse uh, wrote a book called The Catholic Moment, where he spoke about how all things were falling into place and the time had come for Catholics to rise up. Uh, Pope John Paul II at the time was talking about the new springtime of the faith. And a lot of us believed this is it. This is the moment. This is when the church is going to take a first place in America's life and we knew everything there was to know about the faith. This was the era when uh, Protestant minister becomes Catholic was the first Scott Hahn tape and we all eagerly shared it with one another uh, along with Janet Smith's tape about contraception. We knew everything. We knew why Scola Scriptura was wrong. We knew why justification by faith and that works was sort of right, is sort of wrong. We knew where to find Uh, the passage in Paul that mentions purgatory. It was an exciting time to be Catholic. We loved Pope John Paul II. He was this great inspirational figure. And we American Catholics had Cardinal John O'Connor, who said, it is my very sincere prayer that if I live for a week, if I live for 20 years, my last breath will be in support of the sacredness of every human life. He was the face of American Catholicism. He was charming, but tough. He was unquestionably American through and through, but also thoroughly Catholic. He stood up against act up when they were disrupting masses in New York and many of us mourned his death and felt like a great figure had been lost. And we loved when a particular Cardinal stood up at his funeral and said that Cardinal O'Connor was unambiguously pro-life and the whole church erupted into applause. The phrase thrilled us, especially coming from this particular cardinal, who is in fact an American cardinal who first proposed the universal catechism to John Paul II. The problem was the cardinal's name was Cardinal Bernard Law, the Archbishop of Boston, and he would soon become famous for having ignored the priest abuse crisis and promoted priests despite it. And when the sex abuse crisis hit, suddenly all of our apologetics fervor went out the window. You saw people who would enthusiastically come into the church, leave the church, because suddenly the church that we thought was so pure and holy and looked so great on paper, when we saw it in real life, we realized, oh my gosh, this church is a mess, right? So our apologetics understanding of this theoretical church couldn't survive the ugliness and messiness that was in the real church. So the lesson for me was clear. If Jesus is the ultimate argument who's backing up your ideology, even if your ideology is good, then this Jesus will ultimately fail. This is because he's a collection of concepts and a collection of ideas rather than a real human being. As uh, Pope Benedict would say, being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty ideal, but the encounter with an event, a person who gives our life a new horizon. The apologetics Jesus will fail us every time because if he's just a theoretical concept, if he's just the linchpin to an argument, if he's just a truth and not a way and a life, then he's not the real Jesus. And our understanding of him won't survive the difficulties that will inevitably come up in our life. So how to avoid all these misunderstandings, all these false Jesuses? Alas, I don't think I'll be able to sum it up uh, in a sentence or two. But in a recent homily, Pope Francis gave one key to it. He said, our faith is not an abstract doctrine or philosophy but a vital and full relationship with a person, Jesus Christ. The real God who really shared in our humanity and really does stay with us in the sacraments is the real Jesus. The truth is my misunderstandings about Jesus are not that different from my misunderstandings about other people in my life. For instance, a political candidate who you might think is wonderful until you realize he's not or in your relationship with your wife. We tend to either vilify the people close to us as a terrible person by looking at just the negative, or we romanticize them as wonderful by looking at just the positive. And we forget this is a real flesh and blood person who has many dimensions to their character. The best way to correct my misunderstandings about my wife is to spend more time with her. Now, if I think she was a terrible person, by spending more time with her, I realize, oh my gosh, she's pretty awesome. And if I thought she was wonderful and idealized, I'll spend some more time with her and realize, all right, she's great, but she's <laughs> she's not all that. Uh, and the way to discover who Jesus really is, is to spend time with him and talk to him and understand who he is. We will never meet the real Jesus until we actually spend time with him where he can be found. That's in the scriptures, especially the gospels, which describe how he acts and how he reacts to things. We spend time with him in the tabernacle, right? I think it's significant that Mary and Joseph lost Jesus on their way back from the temple. They were spending time with their family. They were spending time in their conversation. Who knows what they were thinking about, but suddenly Jesus was no longer with them. Well, that's what happens in our real life. And we have to do what they do which is go back to the tabernacle where he's always there waiting, asking questions and showing how wise he is. Or discover him in the confessional where you really do meet Jesus Christ in the person of the priest. Or in the community of believers, find people who believe in Jesus Christ and spend time with them. Or in the teachings of the church. I said before how scripture shows us that humanity has always been a big mess uh, the people of God have, has always been filled with leaders who are a huge mess. Uh, there's always been sinners from top to bottom in the people of God from the beginning, but God works in and through all of it. God is not some kind of sentimental imaginary friend who always hugs you. He's not a benign uncle who shrugs his shoulders when you do wrong and winks and gives you a thumbs up, says it's all right. He's committed to justice and committed to us personally. He's not some kind of supernatural force that helps us meet our goals. He is a person who wants us to meet his goals. And he's not an intellectual proposition whose words we should incorporate whenever we see fit and then ignore whenever they don't fit. He can't be fit neatly in a box because he is the box in which everything else fits. I love what St. Paul says about him in the letter to the Colossians. And I go back to this again and again and again and make it a point for meditation when I forget who Jesus is in my life. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He isn't a figment of our imagination or a prop for our agenda. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the most real thing that we know. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.